You're listening to the Sugar Free Podcast with Layla. This podcast generally starts with me giving a little introduction or a summary of the guest that sat in front of me. But today, that's practically impossible because this man's story is unbelievable and I want him to share it in his own way. I'm going to start by letting you know how we met. I was at an awards ceremony that was um, honouring Gareth Southgate and the wonderful work that he did with the England squad pre-Russia World Cup. And... um, Um, Gary Lineker gave a brilliant speech. Everyone stood up and loved that and clapped. And then on the stage walked a man called Ben Williams. This is the man who sat in front of me. No one recognised him at the time except for Gareth Southgate, who very clearly looked at him with a deep respect and listened to every word that he said. And just seeing how Gareth looked at him sort of drew a lot of attention from the room as well. Uh, Ben Williams spent some time with Gareth and the England squad ahead of the World Cup. Um, in a coaching session that I guess was designed to bond, if not break, the team ahead of the World Cup as a former Royal Marine. Ben Williams, hello. Morning, how are you doing? I'm really good, how are you? Yeah, good. Very Um, good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Your speech that day moved me and your story that we've all sort of started to get to know a little bit more since, more so. Um, So I guess what I want to hear from you today is a little bit about you how you overcame what you overcame, and how we can learn from that. So I want to start at the beginning. The beginning. The beginning. Should we talk? Should we say around 15, 16? Tell us a little yeah. bit about your upbringing. Well, I, I think it started even before then. Um, yeah. My parents went through a divorce, which was, I don't think is an uncommon thing these days. Um, and we moved around quite a bit. We did. I did six schools, six homes, and then struggled to find my feet a little bit within just the education system. Um, I think when you move around that that much, it's hard to fit in. And I think that sort of started me off on the wrong foot a little bit and I struggled quite from the off. Um, School wasn't the hardest and school wasn't the easiest. So just looking back, I probably just didn't put as much effort in as I should have. Um, But I used marijuana and smoking and stuff like that as an escapism from what I was thinking in my head. And I wasn't understanding. I basically wasn't solving my own equation. I was just using things to sort of suppress it. Um, and and I sort of just stumbled through school, really. Um, I had my friends and everything like that. I think we all do. But I just couldn't find my feet. And for some reason, I, I just couldn't find that fit. And I couldn't work out what that fit was. So strangely, when I was about... 18, 17 and a half, 18 years old, I was still at sixth form. I then applied to be and trained to be a bouncer mm-hmm. because I was trying to find my feet in that sort of alpha male role. I thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I, so that's what I did. And, you know, my last part of school, I was working nights as a nightclub bouncer. Wow. <laughs> Not the biggest one you'll see as well. A tiny yeah. little boy stood in the door. Um, and I think I was just lost and confused. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I just threw myself into the deep end to see what happened. Um, and that kind of flipped life on its head even more. I got involved in things I shouldn't be getting involved in. At a very very quick sort of start. Drugs we're talking about here as well. Drugs were becoming heavier. Um, and I think because I was a small person at the time, I started abusing steroids as well. So... Has not even hit my twenties, and I was addicted to things I shouldn't have been addicted to. And I was getting, in, I, I, you know, looking back, it's not good, but I was loving the life at the time and getting involved in things I shouldn't be getting involved in. And then an unfortunate evening happened when I was about nineteen, when um, someone who was visiting a nightclub died in a fight with our door team. And although no one was to blame, it sort of, it was my, it, a big exposure to the dark world that we actually live in and how serious things can really get when they go wrong and that then turned life on its head you know we had to go through the manslaughter case and you know get to the bottom of it and clear our names because nothing went wrong Mm. it was just an unfortunate situation but you know it put me on the bones of myself basically so this is a a young lad who's clearly by this point probably fairly depressed addicted to a fair few things in a role that you didn't feel was quite suited to you and exposed to some terrifying things yeah and i I was doing it regularly as well as i made it my job i was doing it five six nights a week so i wasn't sleeping properly for a start um and i was working in 
you know, nightclubs which which did have problems, and it was my fault. I was there. I chucked myself into the mixer, I suppose you could say, mm. uh, and wanted to prove something to myself more than others. Um, and then it it fell apart. As soon as that person died, um, it all fell apart. And I hadn't tr- I hadn't done school properly. I'd walked away from school with little qualifications and grades, and I was lost in life. I didn't know what to achieve, what I wanted. And I didn't have a job then. I was unemployed and I couldn't get a job as well. I just as much as I, I, I seemed to try, I think looking back, maybe I didn't try as hard as I could. I couldn't. And all these things piling up led you to a point where life was something you were questioning. Keeping. Yeah. So my only my only way out was to just keep taking drugs. I sold the car and I started selling my possessions. I was just living at home with my mum. Um, and sh- <laughs> this all sort of came out last year, which was a bit of a shock to her. Obviously, I was quite good at hiding stuff. Mm. Um, I came home, so we live with her boyfriend, and I came home one day and I found all my needles and all my stuff on my bed. Oh. So I'd been caught out, and that kind of hit home. But instead of waking up that moment going, oh, this, I need That's- to sort my life out, I just went further into a spiral of denial. And then... Yeah, it was in my head. I'd pretty much made the decision. I didn't know when, where or how I was going to do it, but I'd, I, couldn't, I couldn't be asked to carry on anymore. Um, and just by chance, that week I was considering um, sort of taking myself out of the equation, the Royal Marines advert came on telly. And so as cliche as it sounds. It's... How old were you at this point? 20. So you're 20. Yeah. Obviously rock bottom. Yeah. Considering suicide. Yeah. Um, and you're sitting at home where things are fairly broken already you've been caught out and you're trying to deny things Mm. and you watch an advert and it's an advert for the Royal Marines Mm. what went through your mind? The advert itself captivated me and it was it brought something back to myself which I'd lost many years ago um even though my parents weren't together, we still saw everyone. And my dad used to take us to the Royal Marines Museum, myself and my brother in Portsmouth, and also the Parachute Regiment's Museum in Aldershot, but I went the Marines way. Yeah. And I used to love it. I was in awe of it. I just, it was, I used to look at these photos adoringly of these guys in the Falklands, um, in Ireland, and the Gulf War, and all these incredible things. And they were my heroes at the time, and they stayed. They stayed my heroes now. I don't know who they are, who who they were, but those photos changed my life because when I saw that advert, fifteen, sixteen years later, it, it sort of changed my life completely. It, it dropped the penny of why am I doing what am I why why am I doing this? Why am I in the situation that I'm in now? And it brought that dream back. And was it as simple as the next day? Was it that straight away or how no? Did... Far from. I saw the advert and I still, it's not easy to unlock your problems. It helps. But what it did do was it gave me a vision. And this is something we can talk about at the end for other people. But it gave me something to suddenly work towards. I didn't have a anything light at to the end work. Of the yeah, it was there. It was my goal. And I never believed in goal setting. I didn't know what it was. I do now, clearly. And it's part of my work. But back then, I didn't know what goal setting was. All I knew was I wanted to achieve this. Green Beret, I wanted to become a Royal Marines commander and, and I was on my ass as a drug addict and it seemed like it would be a hell of a hill to climb just to get to the Royal Marines gate to even start training but the it was like a light bulb in my head when, when that advert finished, it finished on the words all the way through it kept freezing and it would say would you give up here freeze again here, freeze mm. again here and then it's one of the last clips was, if you would give up here, don't even fill out the form. And then it finished on 99.9% need not apply. And I thought, am I that 0.1% who could apply? And I did. Um, well, essentially, you'd already, I know in, in a bad, you were in a bad way, but you'd already proven to yourself that you don't give up. No. Well, that's it. I, now I look back on life, although it was bad and I was doing bad things, um, clearly had a bit of courage to go and work in a nightclub as a 19 year old 18 year old but but that moment when I suddenly decided actually I'm going to join the Royal Marines the hardest thing was actually telling my girlfriend and my mum 
who I thought would be, well, you can't do that. The Afghan war was at its height. Iraq was yeah. at its height. They're like, oh, you can't do that. And both of them turned around and went, thank God for that. You've finally <laughs> woken up. They saw that this yeah. would be good for you. They Amazing. didn't say that those words. They said it in more depth and a bit more brutally. But <laughs> it was good. And suddenly I felt, well, actually, I have this support. You know, the people I was worried of leaving suddenly support me in this new quest. So coming clean from the drugs, I guess you wanted to or you knew that that would have to happen in order yeah. for this to be achieved. Did the Royal Marines help you with that, or is that something you no, did before? No, it was just a, that was just a personal battle. And yeah. um, I believe we we can all change our lives. We can all stop suddenly doing something. If you change your mindset or you reflect on your life or you have that vision, it, it can change everything. And I'm not going to deny that as soon as that advert finished that I never had any more drugs until I joined you know I I would still smoke the odd spliff but I started to cut it down I knew I couldn't just stop immediately but within a month of seeing the advert I was clean wow so that advert was it's essentially you made a decision Mm. a really clear decision that you had a dream now a dream that you didn't have before yeah I think it's because I questioned my own life as well Mm. that that's just not who I am that's not I knew back then that's not who I was I didn't tell anyone about it. I've never told anyone about it until about last year when I started speaking openly about mental health. And um, I, it was just it was just a dark thought in my head that I thought that was my only escape. And then the Royal Marines, as soon as I got the letter through the door saying your medical's in a month, then I was like, well, I need to be clean for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was it. That was a catalyst. Yeah. And But as soon as a week went by after seeing that advert I went out you know I was running and I was trying to run I was very tired and I wasn't as fit because of what I'd been doing and my life stopped to that point but you know even that simple ability to go for a run was giving me endorphins it was dopamine all these chemicals we talk about which I didn't know about at the time I was coming back in going oh I feel good I went I actually madly went and hid in bushes for like a night because I thought that's how we had to train and that's my preparation <laughs> for the Marines it. And I'd sit there in a cold with a jumper on waiting to go in. But but that that's how dedicated I changed my diet. I, I changed all these books on my bookshelf, which was like Lenny McLean, the governor, and, you know, Snatch and Layer Cake and all these DVDs to Royal Marines books and fitness. And it just changed. And my environment changed. And I cleaned my bedroom and I started to discipline myself more because that's what I knew I needed to do in order to, well, make this journey happen. So tell me about your emotions on the first day that you went into the Royal Marines. Um, so even before the Marines, you have to do a three-day course in prep. Okay. And I all, all the way through my journey to joining the Royal Marines, and even through training, I thought, this isn't going to happen, because all these pitfalls kept happening. And so you do your PRMC, which is your pe- potential Royal Marines course, which is three, three nights, four days at Limpston, the training centre, and I had food poisoning the night before. Oh, no. I was on the train on the way down trying to hold my uh, bowels and my mouth closed because oh, I ate an off pizza from the fridge the night before. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm about to go and do the most physically demanding four-day course of my life. With food poisoning. With food poisoning. I was like, this can't be happening. And um, it was tough. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying it, it was it tougher for anyone else, but you know, I came last on all the runs and I got the lowest scores because... You know, I was... Ill. Ill, yeah. <laughs> I was very poorly. Um, you let them know? No. Oh, of course <laughs> not. Because that would have been the worst thing to do. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I scraped through that. But then Royal Marines training came round and I was stood at Milton Keynes platform with my mum and my girlfriend. And it was like, it was such a surreal moment. They were both crying because obviously I was leaving home. I was crying and that wasn't something I used to really do. Um and then I was on the train and I, it sticks in my mind so clearly that I was sat on the train looking at all these grey faces and people which you could just tell were stuck in the monotony of life. And everything up until that point told me in my life that I was about to go do something incredible. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how it was going to unfold, what where it would take me. But I looked at those faces and it... I said to myself, I'm never going to be that face. Yeah. I'm never going to be stuck behind the newspaper board of my life. I'm going to go and do something incredible. And then, yeah, I arrived at Royal Marines training on the 11th of May, 2009. And uh, so, yeah, 10 years to this day. Almost. Was, 
was the unknown what excited you? No, there was a there was a degree of fear into the unknown, but I'd done my research. I knew what was yeah. coming to a degree, and what ha- what was good as one of my best friends um, was actually in training at the time, and he was sort of one of the sort of last nudges of when my yeah. decision making was coming around. He was saying, "Come and try this out, see what you think about it." So I had this guy who I've always been great friends with from school, who was in probably. 15 weeks ahead of me in training who would just constantly feed back information and I knew it was going to be tough I knew it was the, uh, the both the wars were at their height and so the training instructors were adamant in getting the the best breed through um I wasn't physically as gifted in some as some of the other guys but I, I had it upstairs and although there was well there was many troughs and peaks the whole way through but it was yeah, the challenge was exciting. I was actually excited that I'd changed my life. I knew it was going to be hard, but I was excited that this was going to be different. This is going to be something that's... I, I knew it'd be more than the Marines as well, which is probably mm. why I'm in the position I'm in today, because I just knew it'd be my launch pad. You you mentioned you had what it was upstairs, and obviously throughout the Marines in your life, you've learned a lot about mental health and how to be mentally strong and get to where you want to be. We'll get to that later, but by that point, what was it that you had that got you to that point? I think, for me, is not wanting to be where I was. Yeah. So I'd, I'd grown up quite quickly within a year of everything that happened with, from that nightclub all the way through to addiction, questioning my own mortality, and then being in Royal Marines training, it was such a jump from where I had been to where I'd got to. Even if, even in partly in the back of my mind, I thought, if I don't make it through training, at least I've got this far. Mm. Um, which wasn't a get out clause, but I, I was actually more chuffed that I've got to that point. Yeah. And I, I thought, if I can get myself off drugs, and especially cocaine, which was one of the hardest things to do, I can do anything. And yeah, I chose to apply that sort of mentality in the Marines. Um, there was guys from all walks of life, left and right to me, some far worse than I'd come from. And then there was the guys with the silver spoons in their mouths as well yeah. and everyone in between. But I just got to look around and just see this calibre of person which come through and we all joined with the same vision of earning this, you know, infamous green beret. Um, and that spurred me on. It gave me this trust in the people around me, but also... I was finally surrounded by excellence. You know, everywhere I looked, it was, it just oozed off the walls and the instructor, the instructors were just incredible people and you just wanted to be those people mm. and that just keeps you going. And I had some of the darkest times in training, you know, and I got injured and put in the rehab troop for three months, which kept me just treading water. Um, and I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. There were times when I questioned, do I really want to be here? But I think when you've had a leaving party, <laughs> you can never come back from a leaving party. Yeah. So when your friends and your family are waving you off, I think, yeah, you can't go back and show your face. And that's another little... It's accountability, though, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, accountability. You, um, So you've mentioned that leaving party, but then how about when you were told you're going on tour? Hmm, I th- it was never a shock. Mm. L- like I said, both the wars were at their height at the time. And I, th- generations change and come and go, and you know, our generation joined the Royal Marines knew one hundred percent we were going to Iraq or Afghanistan, and we knew we were going to go to some of the most violent places of those places. So it wasn't a shock. And the whole time, the whole way through training, it was installed in you, lads. This is for real. What you're going to go and do is going to happen. Maybe in peacetime now, and I have done the training role as well. It's it's hard to convince people, but. When I was going through, it was, you're going to war, lads. Yeah. So when we uh, when I passed out, I went to 4-2 Commando, um, which is in Devon. And originally, we, would be go- we were tasked to be going into Sangin, um, which at the time, 40 Commando were, at, were there. Uh, and they were having a horrific time. I mm. think at the time I joined 4-2, they must have lost 10, 12 lads killed within the space of about four months, just from 40 alone. So you, you knew this going mm. into it. You'd obviously read all the books and studied and trained as well. You also came from a place where, as a bouncer, you'd seen, you know, something terrible happen and someone died and that hit you hard. Mm. What did you put in place in that in-between time to make sure you could deal with death? 
the nightclub incident was an unfortunate incident, but it it happened and it almost numbed me to that sort of seeing death already. I didn't like it at the time. I thought it was horrendous and I wanted to be as far away from it as possible. But I I joined Royal Marines training having already witnessed something like that. And, and other other people did as well. But it I kind of wasn't prepared for what we were about to go and see. But at the back of my mind, I thought it is what it is. It's part of what we signed up to do. There's no way of preparing yourself to, to go out and witness those things. But I think you just need to it's all about remembering why you're doing it you know the skills you've got your brotherhood the left and people left and right of you what comes from war comes from war and yeah like it was frightening i'm not going to lie getting on the plane from at bryce norton and flying out i was absolutely cacking myself but it's almost strange that after what you went through with as a bouncer that you would seek out something so brutal i know yeah well it's a byproduct of the job, isn't it? Yeah. Was it maybe a mentally sort of going? I've survived that, so I can do. I can deal with death. I am right for this. Um. I think there is a part of that. I think there's. There's that weird sort of. Desire to have that fix as well. You know, drugs brought a fix. Mm-hmm. Um, being involved in quite a dark, violent underworld brought a fix. An adrenaline. An adrenaline rush, yeah, and you know the release of cortisol and. It made me feel a little bit in, well, a bit superhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to carry that into the Marines, but yeah, it was a it was a massive step up. It was a huge step up, and but it was the correct step up. We were yeah. doing it for the right reasons. Um, yeah, and it took us out there. And so out there you were, yeah. Afghanistan at this time, I believe. Yeah. So 2011. Yeah. Here at 14, as part of Lima Company. Um, and I think even in the build-up to Afghanistan, not just training, but like the pre-deployment training when I was actually a commando with the with the Marines, there were so many talented and experienced guys who'd been there, done it three or four or five times, um, and knew this like the back of their hands. And I I, I tried to sort of latch on to them. I, I had my friends, and we we you called sprogs, so people who are new are called sprocks mm. and it takes a while to you know get rid of lose that. that lose that and i'm sure to some of my friends who are listening to this now will still say oh you're still a sprog <laughs> um but then you got your sweats and right. your older boys and the guys which done a lot of a lot of stuff and our troop was privileged to have an, an incredible amount of strong leaders and even young guys who'd been there done two or three tours very operationally experienced and i kind of took a bit of comfort in that knowing that you know, it's going to be hard, it's going to be at times bloody, but I, I sort of felt comfortable that I was with these guys which could go out and support me and knew what they were doing. They've done it before four or five times, they can come back and do it again. You've had, like, the the best training in the world, but you've seen that, you know, with the other troops, 12 men have died, and, and you know that that's inevitable to an extent. Um, that's what you're facing. Mentally, what's... You know, what do they give you and how do they help you prepare for that? Well, this is something that I now speak about and is why I've written the book, which comes out next year, is I, I believe everyone has a commando mindset. Commando mindset is just something that we... It is what we have for in the world we live in, but as in the Royal Marines. But everyone owns this ability to change the way they think adapt a mindset which can get them through something you know finding growth within failure and stuff like that and I think that really I took that quite quickly and I think you you can't have you can't ever be prepared for what we went and did unless you've done it before but you can listen to people who have done it before that experience you can learn about it and you can be prepared and you can prepare your mindset as much as you can Mm. um, before you go and do it but nothing nothing ever prepares you for that that actual first initial thing. It, you say actual first initial thing. Um, obviously, there was probably quite a lot that you went through out there, but tell me about the IED. Which one? Yeah, yeah <laughs> good point. Uh, the one that you spoke about uh, during Gareth Southgate's honours, the one that, well, I guess they all hit home, but that yeah. was quite pivotal. I think, well, so the IED itself, so the IED is an improvised explosive device and it was the Taliban's way of, you know, it was the hidden enemy. It was, 
we could never see it and i think when you say about how do we build that mindset up it was it was progressional through what the actual tour rather rather than before yeah um you know every foot placement you took you didn't know if it, the ground would explode beneath you you were just constantly you couldn't always look up and see where they were in the bushes as in the enemy you would just have to assess the floor as well and it's just this constant psychological battle of I don't know where they are. They're so well hidden and at any moment it can go off. And it comes way before even when we were hit, which I spoke about about at the FWA Awards, is, well, I went on an operation quite early into the tour and within five minutes, one of the lads had stepped on an IED and was killed. But we still had 24 hours on the ground to go and do the job and you just you just have to get on with it. And then... You become quite numb to it. And I was only speaking about it last night with a close friend who I was on tour with about you just have to get on with it. And it's horrible to put it to your back of your mind. But if it happens, it happens. That's the way we sort of looked at it. Is it a detachment? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a horrible thing that you come back with is that you put those, you put all those steps that might be your last step to the back of your mind and you just crack on, you know, and then you live with that for the rest of your life. And yeah. I, the beginning of the tour, don't get me wrong, I I took hours to patrol 100 metres and my commander will be shouting at me to hurry up, come on, yeah. we can't go this slow. But the more you do it, exposure equals composure. You get used to it. Um, but then sometimes you get caught out. And then we were caught out. I feel kind of shocked right now in the sense that you were in such a hard place and you've gone and put yourself in an even harder place, especially when you say literally every footstep could have killed you so um where we were well helmand province was terrible anyway mm. um but it was one of the most heavily ied locations you know and mined locations historically as well in the world um and our little checkpoint so a little our little base was the most basic you could make it it was a disused compound which we took over it was lined with tree lines all around it you could only see 100 meters that way 100 meters that way and that was it and after those tree lines it was the enemy's battle space they could do what they want and they would just come up and put the ieds in the tree lines at night you could hear them doing it but you couldn't do anything about it and then you would just go out we had our we had our metal detectors we had our safety blanket to try and not step on these things but yeah they were there and they always plagued the mind as well you just you just but you had to overcome it you couldn't otherwise it stops you from doing your job when your commander's shouting at you to hurry up and you're cautious of your steps what's going through your mind um, how, how do you hurry your steps it's constructive up? shouting okay it's, yeah. it's persuasive it, it is more out of uh, irritants that was probably taking so long um but we'd always share the burden at the front so there'd be two of us doing it i, I was usually the cover man behind uh, my friend mikey who would be doing the metal detecting so i'd be on his shoulder and even when you're told to hurry, you still kind of think, oh, I'll take my time here. Do you think of family or do you detach yourself from home? Um, the first time we ever got into uh, or got ambushed by the Taliban, I, I thought of home straight away. Yeah. And all my training went out the window and I just jumped straight in a ditch. <laughs> and I was terrible at my job for about 10 seconds. And I was just in this dirty ditch under the water listening to the rounds go over the top thinking why am I even here what are yeah. we doing but then you can't think like that. that that is every part of your life you can always question why you're here at some point in your life and then you realise well I'm here for my mates who are left and right of me we're here to get a job done I need to get out of the water and get into the fight and then even that becomes quite quick and you learn from that mistake of well that's not how we deal with contacts that's how we we do it properly yeah you uh, learn from your failures and you grow from there um and i think that's what happens that's where experience comes from you it's not about being the best all the time it's about you know really messing up and seeing where you can go from there and then towards the end of the tour we were pretty tired pretty fragged as we would call it and we we went on an operation um in deep into enemy territory and the idea was to hit the hornet's nest and that's what the idea was it was to go in and hit the hornet's nest and see what they did and by that time i was pretty ready to come home anyway and ironically i was at camp bastion before we flew out to the operation and i said to 
my long-term friend who I used to speak to in training, I met him at Camp Bastion. We used to go to school together and he was in a different unit to me and I was like, oh, mate, I'm so ready for this to be over now. Yeah. I think we were about six months in. I said I'd happily take one through the calf and go home. And he's like, oh, I don't think like that, mate. You'll be fine. I was like, oh, no, I'll be fine. I wasn't losing it. I was just... When you're that mentally drained, it's like, I'm just ready to go home. And um, we deployed on the operation about four o'clock in the morning and the Americans, US Marines gave us a lift in by air and it was a massive move of troops into an area. Uh, we took over a compound and within probably about two hours, three hours, a grenade was fired over the wall and wiped out five of our blokes straight away. Um, luckily, they were they were bad wounds, but they were superficial. It, yeah. it was not to be grim. Your but... level of superficial is very different to my level of superficial, <laughs> I'm sure. But toes yeah. hanging off and little things like that. It wasn't. We could patch them up. We got them on the helicopter, um, and they were extracted. But it was a bad omen. You know, we'd not been there long, and the Taliban were getting close as well. And they were really giving us a hard time. And do you know what? I was talking about this again last night. It got to the point in the day where you just become so numb to it. Mm. that things would happen. And as long as the guys on the roofs are dealing with it, you'd just sit there and, and just get the rest you can while they're while they're trying to come up to the walls. It just got to that point where, yeah, it was strange. It was real surreal. Is it almost like a personality shift, like a machine, like a computer game almost? I think you have to be. I think you, I am the most emotional person I pretty much know, apart from my wife. Mm. We could sit on a Sunday evening and watch Marley and me and Pierce and Love You and no I'll be crying. Way. Yeah. You're crying at like Disney Pixar stuff. Well pink and fluffy. But back then you just you couldn't you couldn't be like that. You had to just shut it away and just crack on. So you're back that that's a choice again, isn't it? You're making a choice to go right, not using that emotional side of me, using this instead. Yeah, it's a forced choice. It's your own personal forced choice. Yeah. If you if you lie around crying all day You're gonna die. Yeah, you're gonna die. Everyone's (laughs) gonna die around you. It'd be terrible. Um but yeah, you, you just have to close it off and it does seem like a quite robotic thing to do, but you have to do that. You have to do that in order to survive the situation. Um, but yeah, the next day after that unfortunate incident, we went out on a patrol and that was the end of my tour. We were um, we were blown up by an IED hidden in a wall, which wiped us pretty much the whole section out. And that was it. You know, flown back to the UK and suddenly I was back How... in home. How many of you went to that and how many came out of that? So 12 of us went on the patrol and six of us were injured. Yeah, so it was pretty That tough. moment, I mean, a lot of it stayed with you, but that moment in particular probably did. You you flew home the next day? We, we got extracted from the location it happened. We went back to Camp Bastion. I had my first operation. I was not as injured as the rest, though. Mm. Um, what were your injuries? I just took... a bit of frag through the legs yeah um a concussion and all that rubbish but i was pretty easy going um i just needed it removed but some of the guys were in terrible states really really bad states and only through just the heroic mindset of the guys which had survived are those guys still here today mm. um one of them i was with last night it just put his whole life on the line to sprint up the track and do as much as he could to save lives and that takes a caliber of person and that takes it, it takes a unity in our brotherhood for you to be able to put your own safety aside and go I'll, I'll go help the others i don't know the um correct terms with in marines but the um the leader of that patrol hmm. tell me about him yeah so vices and that's who i spoke about um i think with leadership you should never talk about your own leadership you should talk about someone's else someone's someone else's leadership because that's what's probably created your leadership Mm. so learn from people above and vice was a a warrior um at times he was a bit of a hand grenade and like kind of like oh my god what are we doing but he he just got the job done he was very good at it he was an excellent leader he would also always execute the plan perfectly and you kind of had that trust real deep trust that this is bad but this guy could get us out of it and he did get us out of many bad situations um and i think that that type of leadership and those and there was more than just vices there's other people within that um 
troop which you looked at and think I'd follow him through whatever whatever comes um but on that particular day Vice he took probably the hardest hit out of everyone the IED hit him the hardest um and he had severe arterial bleeds and he's unfortunately lost his leg and people like Richie who was with last night just put his life on the line to sprint up the track and drag him out and start saving him and everyone else and that's that's what leadership does it creates followers like that it creates a group of people which are willing to do absolutely anything for you and you've got to think that we were all on about eighteen thousand pounds a year you know we're not there for money we're not there for queen and country we were there for each other and that's what you do during situations like that desperate situations when humanity is pushed to the edge the real human comes out sometimes and um yeah, it's quite profound to look back on it and see what leadership can actually create. What do you do for your people? And then what in turn do they do for you? So we're calling it leadership, but essentially you built yourself a second family, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. And that family that you trusted your life with. Yeah. Even more than probably your own family. And my family knows that. My my civilian friends know that. And I think that's just something natural. When you've been to that type of area in life with those types of people you will never they're, they're bonds you just can't break mm. they're just they solidify your relationships for the rest of your life you know that is we looked after each other so that marked the end of your time at the royal marines didn't no, it? no it didn't oh it didn't no there was more you got that bit wrong yeah i did go on <laughs> tell me uh so i came back and i i did rehab um, and I was pretty fixated on getting back into normal life in the Royal Marines, and I did. And then I stayed. I promoted. But in a different role. Yeah. Oh, okay. There so I'm not are. completely got, no, wrong. I know right. this bit. Um, She's scribbling it down as we talk. But it did. Um, it did change though, because was there something to do with your hearing? Yes. Tell me. So from that, well. Afghanistan sort of ruined my hearing anyway, but um, from that blast, the, the worst thing I probably put, picked out or, or picked up from it was actually a lack of hearing, but mm. I managed to hide it, and which a lot of people do in the forces because they don't want their career to be over. Um, so you're trying to fake all the hearing tests, trying to press it when you think you can hear it. Gosh. And then I went through my career, I, you know, I promoted, I went to commando training centre and I got a fantastic opportunity to take... Um, people like myself civilians to become commandos themselves and it's a cool part to play because i was once that person and now i was helping other people find their feet and get give, give them an opportunity to prove to us that they can become royal marines themselves this is sort of the beginning of the next stage of your yeah. life as it were yeah and really i think it's sort of starting to sound like that's where you were going to go all along. That's where you were aiming for all along, maybe without knowing it. And what it, a journey it, to get there. It was an epiphany, really, because, well, I actually had my heart set on going special forces. And unfortunately, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out. And I had my heart set on that. That's really? probably the reason I, I joined deep down. Um, and when that didn't come to fruition, it was it was taken out of my hands, lastly, because of my hearing. Mm-hmm. And I had to make a decision. And all my life, I'd, you know, before the Marines, I'd blamed the world around me as everyone else's fault for my problems. But I'd by that point learned, well, if it's taken out of your hands, I can't do anything about it. And it was my hearing that unfortunately let me down. Well, let's stay there for a minute then. Because one of the mindsets that we've been talking about up until this point that we're seeing is clearly setting goals and having a dream and aiming for it. And there's a point where a true goal deep down of yours was taken away from you. Yeah. Did that not throw you off course? It did a little bit. It it it, uh, it did a little bit. But I think it was quite a snap decision to just go, oh, well, that's not going to happen. Hmm. On to the next. What's next? And because it was a medical reason, I, it was almost taken out of my hands. So I could sit around and blame it all day long. But I had to find something else. It wasn't Otherwise, I'd just fall back into that way of thinking that I had before. Like, oh, the world's against me. Well, yeah. I'm not going to achieve anything. But actually, I'd got to a point in my career that although I wanted to be special forces, what I'd achieved up to that point was still equally as pretty cool. Um, I turned my life around and I was actually influencing other people's lives to become Royal Marines. And it, it still had this awesome you know, effect. And one thing which was good for training to try and go for special forces, I got really fit. <laughs> that yeah. was a nice byproduct. But then 
when it didn't happen and I suddenly realized that it was medical and my hearing I probably would be losing my career because of it I just had to think quick I had two mm. children at the time and still do clearly but <laughs> I, I couldn't sit around like, oh it's not happening I just had to move on tell me about how quick how because that victim mentality is really easy to do it's really easy to go poor me lost yeah. my hearing all this I've been through and I still can't get there or you know for anyone who's got dreams in whatever area it is it the, I think sometimes the easiest thing to do is go oh I can't it's not my fault and poor me mm. how about you know essentially separating what you can take extreme responsibility for in changing and accepting what you can't how do you separate that? Because some people can con themselves into thinking that's not my fault. Well, for years, I was I was that negative way of thinking. Even when I was in the Marines at times, I, was, I had that really negative way of thinking, oh, poor me, oh, this not happening properly. But um, when you look at the big picture and go, if you, if, you, if you really can't change it or you can't do anything about it and it's out of your hands, then why why waste time bothering about it? Why moan about it? You know, yesterday... Um, Myself and Tomo, my business partner, who's behind the screen, yeah. we were on the train and this lady barged on and moaned at some lady who's in the way of the door. And she's like, oh, move move further in. <laughs> and there's our introduction to London. Oh, gosh, yeah, like, welcome to London. Yeah, and she's moaning, going, move further in. God, people are trying to get on. That's the start of her day, right? And then she Great. walked all the way down the train and me and Tomo were watching her and she was just looking back, two carriages down, staring at this lady. And we were saying between ourselves, we're like, She's spending this time wasted looking at this lady, annoyed that she didn't move out of the way of the door. Now, if we approach every situation like that and just blame and be annoyed at things that are a little bit out of our hands, then we're going to just tread on the spot for the rest of our lives. We have to. As a person, you have to... I'm not talking about the lady on the train, and if you're listening, <laughs> yeah, just get over it. But um, at, the, <laughs> at the end of the day... She might be listening. At the end of the day, it's you, you just you've got to get on with your life you've got to get on with things and we always always face adversity we always face negativity that for me my biggest eye-opening moment was when my mate dino was killed on the battlefield with the rest of us and we had another 24 hours to do the operation you've just got to get on with things when they don't go right if you can separate separate what you can control from what you can't control and go towards what you can control then you're gonna you'll you'll go further than the rest who are just looking at what they can't control so how was your time there? You, do you still coach with the Royal Marines or are you set left now completely? I, uh, no, I'm, I'm not with the Royal Marines anymore, but okay. we do offer advisory things back yeah. towards them. But yeah, when, when the hearing test came about and I failed, just by chance, England football team were coming to commando training center and as a big football fan i was, I was gonna say were you a football fan yeah yeah, okay. yeah i became more of a football yeah, I fan bet. um but uh yeah i was like oh, i need to be on that yeah. because i something in the back of my head was telling me oh, i i quite like coaching people I, I like the whole training environment I, and war wasn't on by that point as well so it's like well there's nothing else to do so let's help other people yeah so um yeah, I was enjoying doing that i got a few good qualifications in coaching and mentoring through the marines and then england came along and uh yeah that so was just an incredible experience newfound young england squad yeah. ahead of the world cup how far was it quite a fair bit ahead of the world cup that that happened it was a year so a year. It was oh, wow. 2017 okay. may April. i hit the media late didn't it yeah it they did. hit that well yeah okay um and so they came to you did gareth have um like was there a plan was there an aim of what you wanted to do and well the royal marines had their own intention which yeah. was to raise profile naturally um but we also wanted to create relationship with equally like-minded people and i think one thing that's not so much overlooked now because it's sort of come to light but the military and the sporting worlds are very very similar um you have people which are very dedicated very goal set have these big visions of achieving stuff they're in, often in the unity of some team um, they go through a lot of problems and they have a lot of highs and lows. No different to the military. I think the only thing we can really say is different is salaries. Um, and uh, possibly consequences. Yeah, possibly. Dar <laughs> dying. I think Gareth, in fact, I've written a quote that Gareth Southgate said, which is um, that he wanted to go to you guys because these guys represent queen and country. We do exactly the same, except the consequences for them are much higher. Well, uh, do you know what? I've had this 
not debate, but this chat with a lot of people. And now what myself and Tomo go around doing is helping organisations yeah. change how they approach situations, their leadership and their performance. And a lot of people say, yeah, but for you, it's life and death. Like, yeah, it is. You can die and you can lose your legs and stuff. But for a football player, if a team doesn't perform correctly or the team don't work together correctly or you go rushing into challenges and stuff like that, you could break your leg, you could get relegated. All these things can happen. And then the lifestyle you know and the lifestyle you spent so long trying to build towards is over. Now, that, in my eyes, is still life or death because being a parent, having two children now as yeah. a career, if my career fails, if my business fails, and just like anyone else, organisation fails, People... there's still lives at, at the heart of that. There's yeah. still mortgages, there's still families. You know, It doesn't have to be as extreme as life and death in the sense of losing your life, but your whole world can fall apart if it doesn't go to plan. People don't realise as well that elite sportsmen, footballer, um, footballers especially, they're, they're very aware that, you know, if they get relegated, how many people's jobs at the stadium will get lost? Mm. How many media won't have jobs there? They're, they're very aware the of the responsibility that it carries. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I see what you mean. And everything's uh, relative in a way, I guess. It's a huge amount of burden as well. Like some of the players we met that weekend and have stayed in touch with since with the likes of Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling and people like that who have the world not just England but the world looking at them and who they are and every move they make and it was as equal to us in the Royal Marines and you don't have to look far in the history of media to see the good things and the bad things the Royal Marines have done and gone through and the the moment you make a mistake on the battlefield or on the pitch you you can be highlighted massively and lose all credibility and your career can be over quite quickly as a team we found that yeah as a team looking at that england team with what you instilled in them and what they had when they came with okay they did come back with a world cup but they were incredible the best we've seen them in a long time what did they do right what was the mentality that they've got right they embraced it, it wasn't what we did as marines and like we played our part and i and i've heard gareth talk and i've heard many people say oh, it was the marines and even on they the credited you highly they yeah. did and it was, it was brilliant and don't get me wrong it's awesome you know and if we won the world cup we'd be saying it was us who won yeah, the world totally, cup totally. clearly um <laughs> but if you really look at it it's we gave them well they volunteered first off for an opportunity with us we gave them an insight into our world we gave them messages and stories that may reflect differently and may they might not have been exposed to before for them to take back but it was up to them to turn that into something you know we provide a message we provide a tool but they had to embrace this new culture and I'd I'd been back to St George's Park I've seen the team many times since and stayed in touch with a few and it's many of those faces who came to the Marines camp aren't in the team anymore but yet they've managed to keep the culture going and um I met with the team probably about three or four months after they came to the camp and there was the likes of Gary Cahill and Dyer and people like that who were actually gutted they weren't there. But the message some of the players brought back to the team stayed within and simple things by not taking your phone into the dining hall and communicating with each other differently and learning about each other outside of football as well as inside of football and that there was no Man United, no Chelsea and Spurs around the dinner tables. It was a unity. And also the staff involvement of everyone who came to the camp, the staff got involved as well. You know, everyone was involved and it's they shared this unique weekend together where they all took back this message. And for those which didn't unfortunately make the cut or go to the World Cup or who are no longer in the team, the message was still already embedded. There were still people who stayed who said, oh, this is what we do now, this is England. And, you know, just the opportunity to show them what our world was like and tell them the stories about Afghanistan and when things are going so bad is when you need to perform at your highest. And I think the only the only reason that we didn't get through to the finals was probably tiredness more than anything. And uh, if you look at the way they performed, that it wasn't the England we'd seen up to that point, they were just knackered. And yeah. I think a degree of respect is earned there by saying, you put it all on the line, lads. And that's what I said in my speech about they didn't bring the World Cup home, but what they brought back that love of football again to our nation. And, you know, they brought football home. 
and the papers the next day that there was it was just it was all over the place but some were negative but some were just Before well done we go off arguing about media because i could yeah i could join you on that argument uh, um i want to ask you what did you teach them and, and how yeah ben how do you deal with fear because we've talked a lot about the action when you're there but sometimes your mind, before you even get into a situation, a high-pressured situation, plays a lot of tricks on you, and you, you're you're fearful. You get scared. How do you deal with fear? Um, how do I personally deal with fear? Yeah. I just keep it really buried in my head and try and keep my face looking like I know exactly what's going on. Um, fake it. Yeah, that, that's fake a, it. Yeah. Well, the first that's a technique. That's the first rule to confidence that. is look like you know what's going on. That's yeah. the start. But. I, Fear is fear is just a perception. You know, you might be scared of a spider and I might not be. Mm. Or, you know, you can present on telly and I might fall apart. It's it's how you perceive a situation. Um, we speak with, within our business and what we try to teach to a lot of people is exposure equals composure, which I mentioned before. And the more you can be exposed to a similar situation, the more you can be put outside your comfort zone the more likely you are to perform at a higher standard when it actually comes to requiring that skill or that moment. Um, I get, I'm probably at my most fearful now than I have ever been. I think I was fearless to a degree, although scared. I think I was fearless in Afghanistan like the rest of the guys because we kind of didn't really know what was going to happen around the corner. You hadn't experienced what death looked like on the battlefield and stuff until it happened. Um, but now, you know, being a parent and having overheads and things like that, I'm more fearful of not just my own mortality, but my children and my wife. But you, it can't stop you. I think it, it will always be there, and it's the ability to accept it. Um, Grant Cardone, who's a the big millionaire tycoon out in America, uh, says fear is just false events appearing real. And Ooh. so it's how you perceive that situation it, it, most people are fearful of something up until the point of doing it and then when you do it actually it's not too bad or, or it feels all right um doing a parachute jump it's, it's scary getting in the plane getting up there the door opens and you hang your feet over the edge and then you're about to go out but when you're out you're in the most euphoric fall of your life and you're feeling all these different chemicals of what we spoke of, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all this stuff's going through you and it, you get a pleasurable hit. Um, and that's outside your comfort zone. I think people should push themselves to the edge of their comfort zone a bit. Not all the time. Don't live under pressure all the time and stress yourselves about being at the extremity of what you can go to. But every now and then, just take yourself off and do something challenging what's going to push you what's going to put you outside your comfort zone because that's where you'll learn your most you learn your most in failure but you learn your most at the testing times um and we see that in all walks of life you know seeing my wife give birth to two children she's she's a chilled out girl yeah. and she just she's happy to just sort of float through life and just be a mum but she learned a lot about herself when she she went through both pregnancies and that's where it happens and it's places like that where you really demonstrate to yourself I'm pretty good you know I can go further than I ever thought I could go anyone can achieve your job now is essentially empowering people yeah tell me about what you do now and the book that's coming out so um I met Tomo who's uh listening yes to the same story <laughs> he always listens to um, so Tomo also has got an awesome story and, and he's definitely someone you should get behind the mic and also yeah, speak to. And um, We set up Vanguard. We were doing our own coaching things, sort of sussing each other out, watching each other on social media. We never actually met in the Marines at all. Uh, we crossed paths without knowing. Um, and we were sussing each other out. Oh, who's this? You yeah. know, what's he doing? That's very like what I'm doing. Um, oh, I need to stamp him out. And, uh, <laughs> And then we ended up having a chat just by chance and we just started talking and we we shared this uh, this vision of helping people yeah, and not making money our drive. Money's a byproduct of the passion you have. You know, if you love what you do and you put your heart and soul into it, well, then you will, you will probably Succeed. be wealthy from it. 
and we were, we just said, you know, I, I luckily had worked with England. I'd continued that relationship. I'd worked with the recruits. Tom had stepped away from the Marines and was in consultancy, and he saw how bad consultancy could be, mm. and that a lot of people don't care. So we, it sounds very cliche, but we want to help people just help themselves. Um, people say, oh, is it leadership? Is it performance? It's just everything. You know, we're taking our commando ethos across to the civilian world, any organisation, to show them just how far you can go and where you can create different cultures. And we proved it with, with England. Yeah. You know, we've proved it with many businesses which we've now worked with. And uh, now it's going to paper next with year. your book. Is it called Commando Mindset? Yeah. Perfect name. Yeah. Um, so my last question to you is, I guess, asking you to go back to your, I guess, maybe 14, 15-year-old self with him having no idea what's coming up in his future or what would have happened. I guess if he saw you now, he wouldn't believe that any of that was real. No. What would you tell your 15-year-old self? What advice would you give? I'd be a bit harder on him first. So get Tough a love. When we were sat on the top table with Gareth Southgate and Gary Lineker and the, the rest of the crew at, that, at the awards, I um, my wife's been with me through his whole journey, which is commendable Incredible. to say the least you know we've had our ups and downs and a few pauses here and there but she has stuck with me through this journey and I I was nervous as anything and I tapped on her shoulder and was like Gary Lineker's nicked my waistcoat joke <laughs> dad and I'm uh, and I'm scared <laughs> and and then I did say to her I was like how have we got here like how are we here sat with these people and she just said just through hard work you should be proud of yourself and uh Without my wife, I wouldn't be where I am today. I would have, I would have probably killed myself or be in prison, and many other things along the way. And I, I couldn't thank her enough. And she's given me two most beautiful children in the world. And I would try to get my younger self to see that, you know, it's not about the money that's going to come in and the businesses and the people we've worked with along the way. It's about Tomo's children. It's about my children, and making sure they can just have the life that I can provide for them. They're not, they're not going to have a silver spoon shoved in their mouth and they're going to earn every single thing along the way. But they will have more than that I gave myself. And at least when they start going off the rails, I can say, I was a cokehead. Don't be a cokehead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was like, we accidentally killed someone. Don't accidentally kill someone. Yeah. Go and do something with your life and enjoy it. And now one of the things we do is not only do we go and work with the conglomerates and the big companies... But when we go into local areas where these businesses are, we go and speak to the schools for free. And we work with schools ourselves. So I work with the two schools near my house. And and we just go in and we sit with the... Just individually, Tommy does his own stuff, I do my own stuff. That's and we awesome. go and sit with the, the kids that are most troubled. And at first off, we just give them a big bollocking, if I can say that. Yeah, of course you can. But Actually, that that's really interesting, that sort of tough love aspect, though. It starts with tough love. It does. You know, lads, listen to yourself, what you're doing, what you're looking at. Mm. You. But the moment you sort of, you know, I used to look at my life a bit sort of, I felt a lot of guilt towards it. I wasn't, I really, I just thought I was an arsehole. But actually what I did was generate and create a load of experiences that now I can help people with. And that's the idea behind the book. The idea behind the book isn't to, oh, have this commander mindset and you just do everything. It's to believe in yourself and have a vision. Find something that excites you. You know, I was speaking to one child, one one lad in our group, which I work with near my house. And he was like, oh, I, I you know, I really want to be a motorbiker. Like, oh, have you got a bike? He's like, no, I got nicked. I was like, yeah, but you're still from the shop. Yeah. So how does that make you feel when someone's nicked your bike? And he was like, makes me, makes me angry. Yeah, mate. Like, well, you need to, you need to look that. at the perspective completely different. Change the way you're looking at the situation. You do that, and you you do that at the shop, or you do that in someone's house. You know, you're you're ruining your life because you're angry at some something that's happened to you. Yeah. You can make a difference. You can be the bigger person and go, all right, okay, I'll, I'll save and get a bike. I'll get sponsorship. Whatever. There's ways of doing it, and I think if we do that earlier in life, we're, we're so good as a society to go look at knife crime. What are the police and the government doing about it? Look at the gang cultures. What's everyone doing? Look at the parents. What are they doing? But if each billionaire, millionaire, successful person, football star, whoever, took 15 minutes, 20 minutes of their year to go into one school 
and sit with the most deprived group and say, I started off right at the bottom, life was shit, but look where I am now and this is how I did it. We could be changing lives far quicker. We could change society far quicker. We can have such an impact for our own mentoring rather than just sitting back and looking at everyone and blaming. And I used to do that as a person. Tomo used to do that as a person. We've all sat there and blamed ourselves. But yet, reflect on that. Where can you help someone else out? Instead of letting them also go into the blame culture or society becomes blaming, do our bit. Just go into a school and go, oh, hi, you don't know who I am, but... But I can I'm help. a millionaire now and this is how I did it and I started here. Love it. Ben Williams, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Look forward to reading the book. Yeah, sign copy coming your way. Thank you. <laughs>